That's on page 882 of your um, pew Bible. And I invite you to stand out of respect for God's word. Going to read verses 31 through 38. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And Jesus said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we pray that you would prepare us to receive the preaching of your word. We've heard it read. We ask even now that it would be reaching deep within our hearts by the power of your spirit. That as we hear the word preached, that we would be ready to believe and to, and to act. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we continue our series in the book of Luke, Jesus is entering into a place of great danger. Danger is written all over this passage and all over this section of, of the book of Luke that we've come to. Uh, we talked weeks ago about dark storm clouds rolling over the scene here in the gospel of Luke. And that's really happening here more and more. We're seeing those storm clouds roll in, you know, a distant thunder uh, rumble. And what we see is that our Savior is only 24 hours away from being hung on a cross, numbered with the transgressors, as we hear um, at the end of our passage, that Jesus is about to stand in the place of sinners between two criminals killed for a crime he did not commit, but killed willingly, entering willingly into that danger. Why? To save us transgressors, sinners from our sins. That's what our Savior is doing. And it is a beautiful reality as he marches into danger. But he's not the only one who's, who's moving through dangerous territory here. The disciples are as well. And it's hard to miss that in our passage. You know, it's almost like uh, this, this past summer I went to Glacier National Park and you make your way up the mountain and you, know, you, you come off the highway where everything is, is, is easy to travel, 
And then you start making your way up, going to the Sun Road in Glacier National Park. And you start to see the road get tighter and tighter. And some of you have been there. You know what it's like where at one point you're looking off and there's there's the, the side. And if there was no railing, you would just you could easily slip right off. And that would be the end. Um, and there are signs all the way up Glacier National Park, all, all the way up going to the Sun Road saying, you know, make sure you drive this amount, you know, this speed and make sure that you stay within those lines. Danger. Indeed, that's exactly the situation that the disciples are in in this text. As they follow Jesus, they are walking through great danger. And sadly, they don't quite understand yet how much danger they're in. That's another thing we're going to see in this text is they don't quite get their situation yet. Let's just take a quick glance at towards the end of this passage. I'm doing something that I don't normally do by looking at the end first. But I just want you to see that Jesus is telling them about this dangerous situation. And he tells them this. By pointing to the kind of times that they are entering into. Times are changing. And he tells them, do you remember way back in Luke chapter 9 or 10 when uh, you went out to preach the gospel? And sure enough, people received you warmly and you saw Satan fall like lightning and people were believing and welcoming you into your homes and and showing hospitality. Do you remember that? And he said, yes, we, we remember those days, Lord. And he says, well, guess what? Times are changing. And now you're about to enter times where you are not, not just associated with Jesus, Jesus, the miracle worker, you know, Jesus, the hopeful Messiah, but Jesus, the cursed, Jesus, the crucified, Jesus, the condemned. And you know what? You're about to receive the hatred of the world because of that. So the disciples are entering into dangerous times. But there's an even greater danger that looms over this text. And we're going to look at it. We're going to see the danger. Then we're going to see a deliverer. And then we're going to see the duty. A danger, a deliverer, and a duty. What is the greatest danger in this text? Is it the hatred of the world that's suddenly coming upon the disciples so that they have to prepare themselves better and grab knapsacks and swords to be ready for when people hate them? No, there is a greater danger that looms over this text, and it is the devil himself. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, that is a frightening statement. To be told that you are on the devil's hit list. Now, that, that is horrifying. But that is what Jesus looks Peter in the eye and tells him. Because Peter needs to know the kind of danger he's in. And we need to know, we're going to see the kind of danger that we're in. Satan has a strategy that Jesus is revealing here. And what is that strategy? First of all, he has set his sights on the disciples. Now you say, well, hang on. Satan already took hold of Judas. He already prepared him to betray the Savior. What's he doing coming for Peter? 
what we already know about Satan from the very beginning. The devil is never satisfied. He has Judas, but he wants more. He wants Peter and he wants all the disciples. In fact, uh, if you could see, there's maybe a note here uh, in, in very small print at the bottom of your uh, your Bible that the you here, when Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. It's the only you in this passage that is plural. He is talking about all the disciples. The devil is out for every single one of them. They're all on his list. Why? Because he is that great accuser. That's what Satan means. The one who, who destroys. Who, like in the beginning of the book of Job, comes before the, the throne room of God and says, so you think Job is faithful. So you think Peter is faithful. So you think John is faithful. Just let me have a whack at them. Just let me show you who they truly are when you strip them down to nothing but their, their sin. That's who the devil is. And he has that strategy, but there's more here. How is he going to do this? How is he going to demand and accuse them? Well, He's going to sift them, sift them. And sifting was something that anyone in this time would know. It's what a farmer does to separate the wheat from the chaff, the good stuff from all the stuff that's caught up with it out in the field. What would he do? He would take a pitchfork. Funny that we think of the devil as having a pitchfork. I mean, maybe this is the only sense in which this is true. You know, the, the farmer who is separating wheat from chaff takes a pitchfork and he drives it into um, all the material that he has in front of him and he sends it up in the air and the chaff, all that trash gets blown away in the wind. But the wheat, the good stuff, it falls down to the ground, proving it's the real deal. Now that's what the devil wants to do to the disciples. He believes to his core that if he could just put pressure on them, sift them a bit, make them squirm in their seats, that, that he could really show who they are, that they are chaff, that will drive away from the Savior, drive away from their master as soon as some wind, either the winds of persecution blow. That's what Satan wants to do. And he wants to start with Peter. Why does he want to start with Peter? Well, Peter is a kind of leader amongst the disciples. We don't believe that Peter is a pope, but we do believe that Peter has some kind of a a prime example amongst the disciples. He was the first to follow Jesus. He was the first to walk on water. He was in many ways, the first, in, uh, the first to speak up and confess that Christ is the Son of God. And so he has that wonderful example to set before the other disciples. And Satan says, well, what if he was the first to fall? Then the others would fall like dominoes, one after the other. The, d- the devil is willing to bet that if he could just toss Peter around, that he would blow away like chaff and the others would as well. And then Jesus would be alone. That's, that's how Satan intends to go about this strategy. It's the picture that the Savior wants Peter to see. He wants us to see. Peter stands on the edge of a cliff, on a, on a cliff, and, and in just a moment's 
notice in just, in just one slip of his foot could send him hurtling into the jaws of the evil one. Peter's in danger. If only he could see. But look at what he says in verse 33. Lord, I will follow you. I will follow you to prison and even death. Now, it sounds so bold, so confident, right? I'll follow you, Lord. I'm the rock. I'm Peter. And yet, what's going to happen? Two, three sermons from now when we, we come to Peter's denial. When Peter is put in the crucible of that courtyard setting where people are coming up to him and saying, Hey, do you know that man that was arrested? Do you know Jesus of Nazareth? Nazareth, aren't you one of his disciples? Guess what happens? Peter, the people pleaser. Peter, the man who seeks man's approval. And just in seconds, he's denied his Lord three times. Yes, he is in this moment in great, great danger. Do you know how much danger you're in? Do you know right now the kind of danger that threatens you at, at every turn on, the, on that long journey following Jesus? You know, we assume that closeness to Jesus makes us immune to Satan's attacks, but we need to hear that no one No one is immune to his sifting. No one is immune to the kind of pressures that Satan puts on people. Ephesians 2 says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And that is true, especially over his sway of unbelievers. But the Bible also speaks of specific ways in which Satan attacks you and I today. Ephesians 6.11 speaks of Satan actively scheming and attacking us. You heard that today. It talked about the schemes of the evil one. The desperate need to be protected from him. 1 Peter 5.8. It's interesting that Peter himself, at a later point in his ministry, tells us this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. It seems like Peter finally got the picture, doesn't it? Do we? You know, in his famous book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis talks about some of the errors that we fall into. Some of the ways that we tell ourselves lies about our immunity to the devil. One of the ways he says we do this is just forgetting him altogether, forgetting that the devil has any place in our lives. But one of the other extremes, he says, is this, that, you know, we we just reduce the devil down to this, you know, red guy, you know, with with a pitchfork in his hands, this tiny little guy with a pitchfork. You know, that's kind of how we fashion the devil in culture and in our minds. And it's not at all the picture of Scripture. You know when we are most susceptible to Satan's attacks, when we are most, the most dangerous place we can be? It's simply this, that when we are thinking that we are strong enough in our own strength to chase Satan off, 
thinking that we're not in serious danger, thinking that he's not a real threat to us. Peter was so confident in that upper room, so confident, and yet he denied Christ three times. I grew up in a catechism class uh, in, my, in the, the church I attended. I think back to all the people that boldly stood up and said, I, I trust Jesus. I'm ready to profess before the church that I'm, I belong to him. And yet, freshman year of college, attacks on their faith came and they came strong. The lure of an inviting lifestyle came and the winds of persecution blew them away like chaff. Friends, we are at every point on that precipice, on that cliff, one misstep, send us flailing to the jaws of the evil one. But this text gives us an incredible hope hope of a deliverer who meets the devil's demands with his own demands. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. It's absolutely beautiful. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. See, what is Jesus doing in this passage? As soon as he mentions this dangerous threat, a real threat, he shelters Peter with his protection. And it comes like this. It comes with a counterstrike against Satan's demands, with demands of his own. Jesus counters Satan's demands with his own pleas. Notice what Jesus doesn't pray for in this passage. He doesn't pray that Simon will be spared from Satan's sifting. Simon is going to be sifted. He's going to be exposed for the chaff that he is. All it takes is one moment of, of, of consecrated persecution. And he's denying Christ three times. But here's what Christ does pray for. Christ prays and guarantees That that little kernel of faith that he placed in Peter, that he embedded in his heart, that is going to remain. Even when it it grows as thin as can be and looks like it's about to snap under the weight of persecution. Jesus says, I'm going to hold you up, Peter. You're going to do what you never thought was possible under the weight of Satan's attack, but I'm going to hold you up. I'm going to keep your faith in me intact. Why? So that you can be humbled and turn and support the brothers and lead well and love well. Jesus' intercessory prayer, his stepping in between Satan's demands and our demise. 
It's all over the pages of Scripture, and it comes to us as this rich blessing and encouragement in our times when we feel Satan knocking on the door, when that intense persecution, that evil day comes before us. And we hear Jesus' words, the kind of prayers he prays for us and for Peter and for all the disciples in John 17, the so-called high priestly prayer. Listen to what he says in verse 6. Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That not one of them would be snatched out of my hand of the ones that you have given to me. Friends, if you ever have any question as to what it is that the Lord Jesus prays for you, turn to John 17, read the high priestly prayer, and know that those are the pleas of the Son of God who is stronger than Satan. What do we sing this morning? You know, arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. And what is Jesus? What do the wounds that the one who is numbered amongst the transgression plead for us? Forgive him. Forgive her. Forgive the one that denied me and their weakness. Forgive the one that struggles with their sins. Forgive the one who is wrestling in fierce temptation. I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Friends, do you have this promise of a savior who intercedes for you? If, if you have not looked to Jesus and believed in this interceding savior, then you do not know one. You do not have one who can step in between Satan's demands and your demise. You do not have a go-between who can do this, who can plead these things for you. You need this savior. Trust in him. Trust in the praying warrior. Ask him to pray on your behalf. He surely will. He surely does for all who look to him. And as you do, as you look to the Savior who intercedes, find courage in him. He is right now at this very moment at the Father's side, at the Father's right hand, praying for you. For all who look to him by faith. For all that the Father has given to him. Praying that he might allow you to be sifted, but never snatched out of his hand. Romans 8.34 asks this question. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. That is beautiful. And all of that is wrapped up in this, this, these simple words. But I have prayed for you, Peter. But I have prayed for you, Simon. But I have prayed for you, disciples. That's what our Savior does. That's an encouragement to me as, as a leader in this church. Because I hear the kind of responsibility that leaders have in this passage, right? Right? Satan is gunning for us. We are on his hit list. 
We need a Savior to hold us up so that we don't fall and lead others towards the path of destruction off the cliff. Well, with this promise of a praying, delivering Savior on our hearts and, and in our minds and ringing through our ears, let's look at the final part of this passage. Starting in verse 35 and going through 38, we hear of the duty that Christ lays upon those that are aware of the dangers that loom around them. We saw how Christ is talking of many different dangers in this passage. And in, 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 in fact, you could kind of sum them up as the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? But you see it kind of in reverse order. First, you have the devil who's orchestrating all of these evil acts. And then you have the flesh to which he appeals, Peter's self-confidence, his pride that he, I've got this covered. Now, Lord, I, I've got this. I'm not going to deny you. And then you have the world, the world who Satan is stirring up and orchestrating And you see the world very much at work in verses 35 through 38 in a situation we already talked about. There was a point when the disciples could go out and receive a winsome welcome because the Savior was the miracle worker. But there are days that dawn upon the disciples and that we occasionally see, in fact, frequently see in this time of waiting for the Savior to return. When the world greets us, not with a welcome heart, but with a a fierce hatred. We see this, don't we? In past generations, we saw that there was a time period in which uh, American culture seemed to greet Christ with some sort of welcome. There was some, some level of warmness, even if it was lukewarmness. There was a kind of warmness towards receiving the things and hearing the things of Jesus. But now we're seeing things shift strongly in the opposite direction where you can even single out specific things today in which we are hated for preaching the Bible, hated for proclaiming the Christ. So much so that Jesus gives you a duty and that duty is readiness. You've seen the danger. You've heard how he steps in between, but he also gives you a commission. He says, know that I am praying for you, but be ready, disciples. Be ready for the persecution that comes. He talks about this sword. I need to say a quick word about this sword. Because if I didn't, you'd all ask me afterwards. What's the deal with the sword? You know, go and buy one. And then what's the deal with the disciples? You know, saying, hey, Lord, we've got two swords here. And then Jesus saying it is enough. What is going on here? At certain points in the interpretation of this passage, people have actually said that Jesus is talking about a, a literal sword. And some have even gone as far to say that he's commissioning the church to use the power of the sword to advance the kingdom of God. I don't believe that's what it's saying. And I also think that we're really missing the intent of the passage if we get stuck on a physical sword. The Bible has things to say about self-defense, and we could have that discussion sometime. But right here, I think what Jesus is focusing us on is actually the kind of readiness that we need. And he is using a knapsack and a sandal and a sword as illustrations for that. 
What kind of circumstances would you need to be in where you need to have a sword more than you need a shirt? Warfare. Intense warfare. Even the kind of spiritual warfare described in Ephesians 6 today, right? The kind of warfare in which the schemes of the devil are bearing down upon you and you've got to be ready and you have to have a sword of the spirit, the word of God, ready to battle him at any point. The disciples say, hey, Lord, we've got two swords here. And he says to them, it is enough. I don't believe that Jesus is saying, yeah, those two swords, they can take on Rome and uh, and anyone who comes against you. Why don't I believe that? Because just uh, two passages later, Peter pulls out one of those swords and he cuts off someone's ear with it. And Jesus rebukes him for it. What is Jesus calling us to? He's calling us to readiness. Readiness, not revenge. Spiritual warfare. So it can be understood that when Jesus says it is enough, another easy way for this to be translated or explained is that Jesus is saying enough of that. Enough of this talk. You are not getting it. He's kind of you know, putting his head in his hand saying, you just don't understand, disciples. They don't get it, and they're not going to get it until the Holy Spirit opens their eyes, readies them to really get what Jesus is saying. But friends, you have the Spirit. If you are looking to the Son of God, you have the Spirit who has opened your eyes and prepared your hearts. And that Spirit calls you right now to be ready to fight the devil. And to be confident that you can take him on, that you can, you can live according to God's commands, even in times of intense persecution. Why? Because your Savior is praying for you. Because your Savior was numbered amongst the transgression, transgressions. He took your sins so that you can have his armor of righteousness ready to fight. Are you ready? Your Savior is praying that you would be ready. Let's go to him in prayer.